That's what his introduction was. So I never had enough time to fall asleep in his talk. I had to hear it. And he starts talking about this protein that does not seem to need any cofactor. All it needs is blue light and you see green. It's a fluorescent molecule. And you'll remember that I only have two thoughts in my head. Where are our genes expressed? And I work on a transparent animal. <laughs> so it's not a great leap, I think, uh, uh, to say, that would be cool. That would be really nice if we could stick that in our cells. Welcome to the 17th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaron. Hi. For our 17th episode, we wanted to do something special. So we invited Nobel Prize laureate Professor Martin Chalfi to be our guest. His groundbreaking work with the green fluorescent protein, also known as GFP, has revolutionized the way we understand the inner workings of living organisms. And since he was kind enough to talk with us for over an hour, this episode will be split into two parts. In episode 70, we ask him all of our questions about his scientific career, how we almost decided he was not cut out to be a scientist, and of course, his discovery about using GFP as a marker. In episode 71, we'll talk about the impact winning a Nobel Prize has on your life and how he missed the announcement of his own Nobel Prize. He has a lot of amazing stories to tell, so let's start. In 2008, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded to Professor Osama Shimomura, Professor Martin Chalfi, and Professor Rodit Chen for the discovery and development of GFP. Professor Osama Shimomura first isolated GFP from the jellyfish Icoria victoria, uh, and Professor Martin Chalfi then used this protein as a genetic tag in cells and C. elegans, providing the basis for many experiments we use today. Professor Rodit Chen extended the color palette into many colors that allowed us to tag various proteins at the same time. We're so honored to have Nobel laureate Professor Chalfi as a guest on our podcast today, without whom our PhDs would have looked very different. Welcome, Professor Chalfi. We're so happy to have you on our podcast today. And I'm very happy to be here, too. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. <laughs> yes. Um, now, before we get into the details, we would love to know more about you. What is the first thing you would like our listeners to know about you? And um, a question we ask every guest on our podcast, do you have any interesting hobbies? Well, I... I have a number of hobbies. What, what would I like people to know about me? I, I think the, um, the one thing that I have as a second job that I have enjoyed a great deal is that I've been fortunate to be on and now chair of the Committee on Human Rights of the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And uh, that has brought me in contact with some rather remarkable people, hearing about some rather unfortunate situations, but it has been a, a wonderful opportunity for me to be part of that. As to hobbies, well, uh, my father was a professional guitarist until he got married, and he decided he didn't want to travel with the band anymore. Uh, and that's, we're talking 1930s and early 1940s. Um, but when I was around 12 years old, he gave me a guitar. And I've been playing ever since, or maybe I should better say I've been trying to play ever since. <laughs> so that's probably my biggest hobby. It's something that I spend time on uh, every day when I can. Uh, it's something I enjoy a lot. I think another hobby I have is a slight addiction to puzzles, <laughs> um, crossword puzzles, logic problems, things like of that sort, which uh, I should probably put aside and grow up, but I enjoy them, so I do them. No, that's really fascinating. I'm wondering, do is there any original compositions uh, when it comes to the guitar? From I, I have made uh, some things up uh, that I, I play in the privacy of my own room uh, <laughs> that I, I, I have enjoyed. I, I think uh, 
not to go on too long about this, about <laughs> music, but um, I think what excites, there's two things that excite me about playing. One is the actual physical playing, that I can actually do something, that you can actually make music, uh, which I enjoy quite a lot. The other is an element of discovery, mm. where uh, learning uh, a new rhythm, learning a uh, new uh, chord pattern, thinking about music in, in, in different ways is, is something. And I, I feel I'm exceptionally slow at this, I'm, but I'm gradually learning. Uh, mm. Uh, but it, it gives me a great deal of enjoyment to uh, suddenly see something happen. Mm. No, I can imagine that. Uh, it's sort of like pattern seeking, I guess, that you always find a new pattern, something new to explore with. No, they're definitely very interesting. Um, so yeah, for this episode, we thought it best to start sort of at the beginning of your scientific career. Uh, so our first question here is, who uh, or what inspired you to become the researcher you are today? Well, there were many people and uh, uh, many false starts, I would say, along the way. Uh, I was interested in science as a high school student, a late elementary school student, uh, and in college. I uh, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to, to do. Uh, but settled on, uh, we're talking now in 1967, 68, 69, uh, settled on a major which was biochemistry. There's two reasons for this. I was a biochemistry major because I had originally thought I might do, take a lot of math courses, which I did, but decided not to major in math. Mm. And uh, biochemistry would accept all those courses as part of its training. And the other thing is, at the time, biochemistry sounded very sexy. It sounded <laughs> new and adventuresome and, and, and really uh, a, a wonderful, uh, different way of looking at things. Biology, physics, chemistry, they were old science. I was very naive. But in any case, I majored in biochemistry. I realized in my junior year, well, actually, sophomore and junior year, that I needed to get some experience. I had to work in a lab. Mm -hmm. And over the summer, I uh, went to uh, work in, in a lab. And uh, it was a complete disaster. Everything failed. I was in a room all by myself. Mm -hmm. I also felt I shouldn't ask anyone for help because asking for help meant I didn't know what I was doing, which was true, but <laughs> I was admitting it and I wouldn't admit that I was really completely competent, but I was, and it failed completely, every experiment. At the end of the summer, the man I was working for said, look, go home, it's a couple of weeks before term starts again. Rest up. Enjoy yourself. Come back. Do the experiment one more time. And if it doesn't work, we're going to have to stop the project. But you should give it one more try. And I did. I did all of that. And it failed completely again. And I took that as absolute proof that I should never be in science. So my last year in college, I took a lot of very interesting courses that were not science courses, had a ball <laughs> doing it, and uh, graduated thinking, that's, I'm never going to be a scientist. Uh, after about a year or so, I got a job teaching high school. And when I was teaching high school, I made a discovery. The discovery is that High school students have summer vacation, but high school teachers have to find a job. And so okay. I needed to find a job for the summer. I happened to be near New Haven, and a friend of mine who knew a scientist named Jose Zadunaisky in the ophthalmology department said, 
maybe Jose has a place in his lab for you. So I applied to his lab. We had a very nice conversation where he described the work that he was doing, which I found astonishing. And I often now use it as an example to students when I'm giving a, 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 a talk, I, I will say, I work, or I worked, my first, very, very first uh, successful research experience was working on the transparent part of the body. And I asked people in the audience, how many of you know what the transparent part of the body is? And about five to 10% of the people raised their hands. And then I say, oh, I'll give you a hint. It's right in front of your eyes. Because what he was looking at was why, what makes the cornea transparent? Mm -hmm. Something we take for granted every day of our lives. And I was fascinated that somebody was trying to answer this question. And he described some experiments. And it reminded me of a paper that I had read when I was in college. I remembered the and the only reason that it reminded me of it is the apparatus that he used mm -hmm. and the apparatus they used in the paper I had read when I was in college was the same. Everything else was different. Different animal, different tissue, different ion, same tool to measure it. And I remembered the conclusion of that. And I asked him the question. I said, does cyclic AMP have anything to do with this? And he looked at me very surprised and he said, yeah, I, I don't know, but you're the second person to ask me that question in <laughs> days. And I think because I asked him a question, Jose offered me a job. Mm. Now, I should tell you how ridiculous the question was. <laughs> it was like saying to somebody, oh, you used a gel in that experiment? I once read a paper using a gel. <laughs> I found out this answer. Did you get the same answer? But somehow, I think maybe just asking the question was good enough. And he hired me. Now, there's a... So he hired me. I consider that the first miracle. The second miracle was he announced a week after hiring me, that he was going away to Europe. And he'd be okay. back at the end of the summer. So I was left there with a technician that was in the lab that I could ask for advice and a postdoc and a research associate. So there were people there that I could ask for help, but he was gone. And I found the second person that asked the question. <laughs> and I, I said to him, you know, if if psychedelic people were working here, what, what would you do? And he said, well, the first thing I would do is I'd throw adrenaline on it, see if that had any effect. And I did that experiment. And it went just like gangbusters. It worked <laughs> beautifully. And okay. so, so now there is... There's a phrase, I think it derives in some way from W.H. Uh, Auden, the poet, <clears throat> who said something similar, but I've heard it as everyone likes the smell of their own farts. <laughs> what I take that to mean is you like your ideas no matter how badly they smell. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I did not do the assigned experiments that he asked me to do, I went off and talked to this guy and found out how I could do my experiments. I went to the library. I found papers that were relevant. And uh, when Jose came back at the end of the summer, he asked me what were the results of the experiments he had assigned me. And I said, don't have a clue. But <laughs> with all of this, and I showed him all the data, and he was very nice, and that wound up being my first scientific publication. Mm -hmm. And it gave me something I really needed, which was 
confidence that I could do science because I had thoroughly convinced myself mm. that that was not the right thing to do. And so having the opportunity and the support that Jose gave me both <laughs> by going away <laughs> and then by being very supportive afterwards mm. uh, was very good. And then I was very fortunate when I went to graduate school because I had a chance to work with Bob Perlman. Um, Bob uh, had, uh, had done some spectacular work. Uh, if you've ever studied the LAC operon and the cyclic AMP receptor protein, um, that work was Bob Perlman, Perlman and Paston. And uh, Bob uh, was basically an endocrinologist and um, I worked in his lab. I had a desk right outside his office and I pestered him daily. We would talk all the time. And he was a person that said, I don't care if it's nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night. I want to hear the result of your experiment. Call me up. So we talked all the time. We talked constantly. And having that interaction, that constant interaction, interplay, was spectacular for me at that time. Hmm. Then I went to Cambridge, England uh, at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, ostensibly as a postdoc with Sidney Brenner. Now, Sidney, who is an absolutely brilliant person, took people into his lab, but it was assumed that you were on your own, that you were going to be working you could, you, you talk with all sorts of people. But uh, many years after my postdoc, a fellow former postdoc and I were sitting around talking. And uh, I said to him, you know, I was there for five years. And I actually had only five scientific conversations with Sydney. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I was there for five. I had five as well. And then we both looked at each other and said, and the longest conversation was when he had his motorcycle accident and he was in that hospital bed and couldn't walk away. <laughs> and I thought this was very funny until I saw a couple of weeks later, another former postdoc from the lab. Uh, and she said, you talked to him five times? I was there five years. I only talked to him twice. <laughs> but we, but the thing is, we all flourished. Mm -hmm. We flourished because there were so many good people to talk to, so many. It was great facilities, great mm -hmm. supplies, great things. But we interacted, but we were assumed to work on our own. Mm -hmm. And so that was also the perfect way <laughs> of being. Uh, to, to have that. And, and finally, I just want to mention two other people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a longtime friend of mine, uh, we were friends in high school, we have remained <laughs> friends, is Bob Horvitz, who got his Nobel in 2002. And Bob uh, uh, had already been in Sydney's lab. We actually overlapped, overlapped his postdocs for a while. And I think it was partly through him and uh, getting to hear a little bit more about what was going on that uh, motivated me to go to England to do that. The other person who I worked with there, there were really amazing people to work with there, but uh, in terms of mentoring, John Solston, who also shared the 2002 Medicine Physiology Nobel, was an astonishing person. He was not only a brilliant experimentalist, but he had a way about thinking about science that I always envied. While I was probably sleeping in all those introductory biology classes, he was learning the fundamentals. And so he wouldn't talk about things in a complex way. He would always bring things down to the basic principles that were involved. He also was the most ethical person I've ever met. And 
as a role model, you need people that have their hearts as well as their minds in the right place. And he certainly did. Okay. Um, now we have already talked a little bit about your PhD experience. Uh, now, since we are both PhD students and a lot of our listeners are, I do want to ask a little bit more about this. Um, what was your PhD experience like? You already said that it was amazing, but were there also difficult parts? And was it just as difficult for you as for all the other PhD students that are doing this? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> all of the experiment, all of the experiments were the first time. And no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that did not happen. It does not happen. Uh, we had uh, I I. There, there, there are a number of different stages of this. First, I, I thought, oh, I've got to come up with a project. And I, I used to go to the library. I'd read a journal, I, and i think about an experiment. Usually an experiment had nothing at all to do with anything that was going on in the lab, <laughs> just a random experiment. And I, I'd get all excited about it, and I'd go to Bob, uh, Bob Perlman, and I'd say, Bob, I got an idea for an experiment. And I spell it all out. And he's like, that's good. I just read a paper where they did that experiment. And I get all very unhappy and depressed. And then he said, no, no, no. You're thinking about this completely wrong. You should be very happy because you're thinking of experiments that are actually really important experiments that somebody else has done it that's that's okay that's going to happen but you're thinking of you're not thinking of something trivial you're thinking of something that's a worthwhile experiment so that that was sort of the beginning then we we had some ideas we had some experiments that we were trying didn't work at all oh the project changed and as these things do projects change as you proceed through them and uh so it, it was not easygoing all the time, uh, but it, it, I think there were two things, at least two things. One, uh, I had and still have a profound respect for Bob. Mm -hmm. He was oh, and is a wonderful person, as well as being a, a brilliant uh, scientist. And it was a real pleasure being there. And there are a lot of friends in the lab. I think one of the things we don't often talk about is the fact that the, the lab is a clubhouse in the sense. It's a place where you go and uh, there's a lot of people interested in the same thing you are. And uh, um, you become a little bit of a family, certainly. A, a, a close-knit group of people with a common interest. And uh, there were wonderful people in that lab. Uh, and it was nice to be part of it. So I, 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 th those were the good, good parts. Every once in a while, an experiment would work. That would make you feel good. <laughs> and then, and, and, uh, but they didn't work all the time. I, I had a lot to learn. Yes. <laughs> No, that's I, I, I really appreciate hearing that from you because it also echoes the fact that the PhD and the PhD and research itself can be hard at times, um, but indeed, like the the group can and having a supportive environment that, well, supports you through the process and helps you thrive in that environment is always amazing and it's great when it happens. But maybe to touch on your your sort of postdoc experience as well because you mentioned. Uh, Sidney Brenner, Bob Horvitz, and John Solson. Um, I'm wondering, what was all the experience of working with them uh, like? Was it that that sort of freedom to keep doing the research that you also found interesting uh, was one of the bigger aspects that contributed uh, to your postdoc experience being great? Or what, what so, other things? Yeah, I mean, there is, as I said, uh, everyone was really expected to do their own experiments. That didn't mean we were necessarily working alone. Mm -hmm. There was lots of collaboration, lots of interactions among people, but you set the agenda of what you were doing. 
And sometimes the experiments worked and sometimes they didn't. And, but you had the opportunity to try. And I think that that was a wonderful aspect of the laboratory of molecular biology. Uh, the sort of openness. There was also something there that I had not experienced as much at, either as an undergraduate or as a graduate student uh, at Harvard. Uh, and that was, here were people that were excited about science all the time. <laughs> I like to tell the story about how a group of us were at coffee. This was the 1030 in the morning break that... Uh, people would take. We were seated up in the canteen in the laboratory, and someone came in and said that the astronomy department at the University of Cambridge was going to show the NASA films of the uh, Voyager 2 flyby of Jupiter in about an hour. And 35 molecular biologists and geneticists get up, get in their cars, and we all drive down to the astronomy department to watch this movie because it was exciting mm -hmm. to see this. Uh, there was a wonderful bookstore. I think it still exists, Heifers. And there was an extensive science section. So Saturday seemed to be the day that you'd go down to the bookstore and see what new books had been there. When there was a uh, a book about science, uh, Stephen Jay Gould's several books, This Measure of Man, uh, Ontogeny and Phylogeny, and, and other books. They would, everybody in the lab seemed to read them. I mean, you get excited about this. Uh, and, um, and, and, and people were talking in, about science all the time. And I found that very exciting. Yeah, people might from afar, look at it as a little strange, but I thought it was, it was this enthusiasm. There was also something about the fact that there were really brilliant people on the staff. And people were doing really wonderful experiments. I was, I arrived in 1977, every November, they have a, or they used to have, they have it still, they used to have a lab conference where different people would get up and talk about what they had been doing in their laboratory. And Fred Sanger got up and he said, we've been working on trying to figure out how to sequence DNA. And uh, we came upon this idea of using dideoxynucleotides. But when we looked in the Sigma catalog, they only sold one of them. So we decided we'd have to synthesize the other three. And because we're not chemists, <laughs> uh, it took us a couple of months. This brought the house down. Because as, as Mark Potashi, who was sitting next to me, turned to me and said, people have been trying to make those for years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and, but that's when they announced the sequencing mm -hmm. uh, procedure. Oh, so, cool. wow. so it was, and, but anyway, when you had people like this or down the hall, there <laughs> Cesar Milstein of monoclonal antibodies. And there were, and there was Sydney, and there was uh, uh, all these wonderful people uh, in the, the structural biology section and other parts. You didn't want to let the side down. It put a little <laughs> bit of pressure on you to uh, say, "What am I doing? <laughs> How? What should I be working harder? Should I, you know?" Uh, uh, and I, I think that sort of um, pressure by example, I think mm -hmm. it's not a bad idea. I mean, no one forced you to do it. No one, you know, as I said, you were on your own. You, you did what you did. But the opportunity was there. Mm -hmm. 
or if you want the role models yeah. were there of people that were thinking about science all the time. And uh, we had a very wonderful group of people uh, in, uh, that came to work on CL agains. And uh, it was wonderful being with them. They, it, it, they, they were an amazing group. I'm John Solston and John White, who did the complete reconstruction of the nervous system, uh, were staff members. Jonathan Hodgkin arrived a couple of months after I did. He had been a graduate student. He became a, uh, a staff member. And then we had a whole series of wonderful postdocs that came through. As I said, Bob Horvitz was there, but Judith Kimball and Cynthia Kenyon and Phil Anderson and Ed Hedgecock and Andy Fire and uh, Jim Priest eventually. Uh, they, they were amazing people and, uh, and it was good. And then, uh, and, and one more person as I'm name dropping here. <laughs> Another remarkable uh, electron microscopist, Nicole Thompson. Now, one of the real uh, accomplishments, one of the most astonishing accomplishments, is the reconstruction of the worm's nervous system from serial section electron microscopes. Now, it's not hard to cut sections. That's the easy part. The hard part is to not lose a single section mm. when you're sectioning thousands. <laughs> and Nickel was that person. He was astonishing. He was an amazing talent. And, uh, and he enabled many of the experiments I did as well as that uh, project on the uh, structure of the nervous system. And it was wonderful. So it was a wonderful group of people. Nickel, I will share one of my favorite stories. Nickel came from the Scottish town of Millport. And apparently across the water from Millport was the Isle of Mull. And one day I'm talking to Nickel and he says, and I, I said, oh, you're from Millport? He said, yes, but we have a saying in Millport. If you can see mull, it's going to rain. I said, no. What, what happens if you can't see mull? He says, it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Science That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> no, it sounds like a really uh, inspirational environment. Um. Now, we're moving on to the time that you developed GFP as a marker. A little bit before that, what was your scientific career looking like uh, and what were you working on, actually? So, when I, had, when I was planning to go and do my postdoc at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, because of the background that I had, I was going to start looking at neurotransmitters in the worm. But we had the first international worm meeting, all 125 of us, at uh, Woods Hole just before I left. And uh, I picked up my friend Bob Horvitz at the airport and was driving to this meeting where I was going to meet all these people. And Bob, as we were driving along, Bob says to me, John Sulston has been doing a really interesting project where he's found the, some cells that sense touch and he has a couple of mutants that affect it, but he's not going to pursue the project. You might think about this. So I go to the meeting, I meet John for the first time and John was scheduled to give a poster. I don't think he wanted to give a poster or he was doing the minimal amount of work, he had a single slide of one of the mutants and its <laughs> structure. 
and the slide was taped to the window. So the, the <laughs> daylight would you go through and you'd have to peer at this little tiny thing and he'd tell you about it. But I decided this was great and this is what I was going to work on. So I started working on obtaining mutants defective in touch and using them to study two basic problems. One problem being that some of the mutations were in genes that left the animals without touch sensing cells. So these were genes that were needed for the development, for the differentiation of these cells. So a developmental biology question. But in addition, there were a number of the genes that could be mutated to make the animal touch insensitive, but the cells were made. They just weren't working. And that started to address the problem of function. How, what are the, what, what is the molecular basis of mechanosensation? And when I started this work, no one had a clue about how mechanical senses work. We now know that there are several different membrane molecules that allow for the detection of mechanical force on cells. But at the time, no one had a clue about it. And it seemed like a wonderful way of addressing that fundamental problem in sensory biology. So I did several other experiments relating to that, I suppose. And then that was my project. I took all of that with me and we expanded that. And with the advent of cloning, uh, were isolating the genes that had been mutated in our touch-insensitive animals. And we were starting to do experiments. And sort of the first experiment one would do once you've cloned a gene and you see what the structure is and, and everything, is ask the question, where is it expressed? Is this expressed in the touch-sensing cells? Is it expressed in something else? maybe an associated tissue. And so uh, those gene expression studies were things that we were very much in the midst of doing uh, in uh, the late 1980s. And uh, there were lots of ways of looking at this. Of course, you knew what was encoded, that you could have an antibody against the protein. You could do in situ hybridization against the RNA and see where that was. Uh, or you could use a reporter. And the standard reporter at the time, there were several, but one of the ones that we tended to use more was uh, the LAC-Z gene and beta-galactosidase. Mm -hmm. With XGAL, we could get a nice blue deposit wherever this, the gene was active and making the enzyme. All of these methods worked. They answered the question, where is this gene being turned on? But they all required, one, a lot of preparation and that the tissues be dead because we had to fix them and we had to permeabilize them to be able to get the reagents in, either the antibody or the probes for the in situ hybridization or XGAL for to look at the beta galactosides activity. So all of these gave a very static view of the expression, but they answered the question. And we continue to work on questions of cell differentiation in the nervous system and mechanosensation today. That's continued. That, uh, there's a, a wonderful thing I like to, to uh, bring up periodically. Um, Alfred Hershey, uh, the uh, Nobel laureate, he and Martha Chase uh, were the ones that did the wonderful experiment having radioactive phage infect bacteria and showing mm. that it was the DNA, not the protein, mm. that was transferred to the bacteria. Um, uh, Alan Guerin, a professor at Yale, once asked him, what is your idea of heaven, scientific heaven? What is scientific heaven? And he gave an answer 
that's in uh, Horace Freeland Judson's The Eighth Day of Creation, where he says something to the effect of, um, it's when you do an experiment over and over and over and over again, it always works. Now, I sort of think about that as scientific hell, because why would you keep doing the experiment over and over and over and over again? But that's not what he meant. What, what's left out of the quote is, is, is what everybody has interpreted that to mean. And that is, you do the same experiment over and over again. It always works. And you always learn something new. And working with these touch-sensing cells and C. elegans, I feel I'm in Hershey heaven. Because I constantly there's another problem that comes up or not even one that I think of that other people think of by using these cells as a sort of in situ test tube for all sorts of things and asking all sorts of questions. And so we keep coming back to it because there's more things to learn or more questions to ask. But to talk about the discovery of or my involvement with GFP, um, there's only really two things you need to know. One, I've already told you that we were interested in gene expression because we were cloning genes and we wanted to see what they were expressed. So that was on my mind. The other thing, and we're talking now 1989, I've been working on worms for about 12 years at the time. I had given many talks and every time I gave a talk, like every other person working on C. elegans, I would start the talk off with the list of all the reasons why it's the best system to work on in the entire world and everyone else is mistaken, <laughs> something to that effect. And one of the primary things that we all would say is, it is transparent. Well, after 12 years of saying that it was transparent, it sunk into my head that it was transparent. <laughs> Maybe you get an idea that there's a theme in my scientific life of transparent tissues. But I, uh, I went to a noontime seminar and a man named Paul Brown was talking and it was a speaker. And he started off by talking about Shimamura's discovery of GFP. Now, I had known that Shimamura, I didn't know the name, but I, I knew about the jellyfish as the source of the calcium indicator, a corn, which is a bioluminescent molecule. And I knew that that had been used as a tool to look at calcium entry into cells and, and so on. But I had no idea about green fluorescent protein. I had, just had never heard of it before. And that's what, his, that's what his introduction was. So I never had enough time to fall asleep in his talk. He, I had to hear it. And he, tell, he, he starts talking about this protein that does not seem to need any cofactor. All it needs is blue light and you see green. It's a fluorescent molecule. And you'll remember that I only have two thoughts in my head. Where are our genes expressed? And I work on a transparent animal. <laughs> so it's not a great leap, I think, uh, uh, to say, that would be cool. <laughs> that would be really nice if we could stick that in our cells instead of beta-galactosidase. No, no, all we'd have to do is shine blue light on it and we would see where it is. We could see it in living animals. We could do mutant hunts with it. We could look at where proteins went. We could look at how genes were expressed. I got really excited listening to the seminar, so excited. I have no idea what it was about because I wasn't paying any attention. I was just fantasizing about the experiment. The next day, I, um, I thought it was the same day, but the notes say that it was the next day. <laughs> I, uh, I, I tried to find out who was working on GFP, and I found that there was a researcher who just finished his 
postdoc at the University of Georgia, I think, and have been at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, Douglas Prasher. I called him up and we had this really wonderful uh, discussion about using GFB uh, in CLIM, E. coli and then CLIMs. And, but he hadn't finished isolating the seed DNA. So we didn't have a complete seed. And we set up a collaboration. We were going to do this. It was going to be wonderful. And then we lost track of each other for three years. Um, I didn't want to bother him thinking he had failed and I would, I would make him feel uncomfortable or something. I just decided I shouldn't call him. And he thought I had dropped out of science. But in September of 1992, I had been talking to other people about what other things we might use. I still like the idea of using a fluorescent protein. And I had a, a, a we had the start of the new academic year and a new graduate student wanted to do a rotation in my life. And she had just finished, her name is Gia Skirkin, and Gia had just finished a master's degree in our engineering department where she had uh, done work on fluorescence. So I figured this is the perfect person to get excited about this project. <laughs> and so I talked to her about it. And I said, well, you know, we're going to have to look for another fluorescent protein because Douglas hasn't gotten in touch. With but the university just put Medline, the precursor of PubMed, hmm. uh, on, on our computers. Let's look and see what comes up if we just enter fluorescent protein. And what came up was Douglas Prasher's paper published earlier that year saying that he had isolated the CDN of something he called APO-GFP. We ran down to the library, got the journal, and it had a, a wonderful part to it. It had his new phone number. Oh. So we were able to get in touch with him. And uh, within a very short time, he sent us the cDNA. We were new collaboration. He sent us the cDNA. And Gia uh, set up to look at its expression in E. coli. And it worked. <laughs> and then that was it. <laughs> we, had, we had found a, a new marker. And uh, we were very excited. <laughs> yes. Can imagine. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers, just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 
for a 20% discount. Um, now, going from a great idea to a successful experiment um, does tend to come with a few hurdles as well. Um, but it does tend to come with a few hurdles as well. Um, can you walk us through what it was like working uh, on those first few experiments with GFP and then writing uh, the, the, the eventual landmark paper uh, about GFP in science in 1994? So I've subsequently learned that at least three other groups tried to get GFP to work. Oh. Now, I should give you just a slight bit of background. There may have been other groups because, and this is the background, people knew that GFP did not need any cofactors, but it did something highly unusual. Instead of having a linear peptide backbone, it actually cyclized, making a five-membered ring out of the peptide backbone. Mm-hmm. Now, this five-membered ring is near a tyrosine and it allows for a, a bigger resonance structure and it's absolutely needed for the fluorescence. And people had no idea how this five-membered ring was made. You know, normally you just have a line. Now you have a line and a circle. <laughs> How do you get that? And they thought, well, it's going to take one, two, maybe even more enzymes, converting enzymes, to modify the original polypeptide to make this final form. I think this is one of the reasons Douglas called his initial isolation APO uh, GFP. And if you need other components to make it work, then it's not a very, it's not a tremendously useful tool. Mm-hmm. If it's only a single thing, that's fine. But multiple things, then you get a, that becomes a little unwieldy. So this was a potential problem. I don't know how many people talk themselves out of doing the experiment thinking that that was the case. When we did these experiments, Gia, um, as we talked about what to do in the experiment, you have to remember it's 1992. If you want to make good copies of DNA, what you do is you grow them up in an organism, have the organism's machinery duplicate, replicate the, the, the material. And then you know you're getting high-fidelity copy. Mm. If you don't care, but just want to make a lot of copies, Mm. you use PCR. and You amplify the thing up. But there's going to be a lot of mistakes as it misreads it, whatever. But there's going to be some that are good. The other three groups that I know about all decided that they wanted to have, they wanted to be careful. And they used, they grew up the phage that Douglas had given them in E. coli, made many copies of the phage, and then cut it with a restriction enzyme. Mm. This gave a fragment that had the cDNA of GFP, but also other material. Mm because the restriction enzymes didn't cut exactly what it was supposed to. I didn't want to do that, and so what I suggested to Gio was to use PCR, amplify it up, but use primers that only isolated the cDNA for GFP that we could then cut in certain correct vector and then express. It turns out that all the people, so we were sloppy. Why were we sloppy? (laughs) We were sloppy because we were not, I was, we were going to put this into millions of bacterial cells. And so if only 1% was the right sequence, that was fine with me. We didn't have to have everyone working. We just had to get one working. 
If we didn't see anything, then maybe it did need some other enzyme. Well, the other three groups had the extra bits on it. There's something about the extra bits never really been worked out. It does not work. And so they put their constructs into whatever their systems were and said, we're not seeing anything. There's no fluorescence. Therefore, there must be a component missing. And so they, I believe they interpreted their work as uh, this is not as exciting because we need other things here. Our experiment worked the first time. <laughs> and, and that said, you don't need anything else. <laughs> anything you need is already in the cells. And all you have to add is the gene for GFP or the DNA for GFP. And so that's what we did. And uh, we um, uh, knew that it worked. Uh, there's a little bit of jumping around there uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, and um, we then proceeded to then put it in the CL again. Mm -hmm. A wonderful technician, Jan Tu, who did that. And uh, then we wrote it up for publication and uh, sent it off. And uh, had a few problems along the way that I've told people about over the years. They they didn't like our title, which they thought was much too long, and so we had to change that. Or no, they didn't like. I'm sorry. At first, they didn't like the title because we said GFP, a new method for gene expression, and they said we never use the word new. Everything we publish is new. You can't use that word. So they didn't like our title, and so I, I made a very, very long title. <laughs> they accepted the paper and then said, could you shorten the title, which I did. <laughs> uh, the second thing is uh, we had a picture that was on the cover of uh, Science Magazine, and uh, the cover editor called me up one day and said, you know, we love the picture. We're going to use it on a cover. Green is not our best color. We would like to change the color. And I said, nope, <laughs> not going not gonna to do it. And the third thing, which is more a joke because uh, yeah, in our family here, um, my wife and my favorite holiday is April Fool's Day. Um, the, um, uh, we had already been giving samples away to lots of people. There were people, I, I, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, well, we'll get to that in a second, the, we, the very beginning of GFP. But um, we had given it to, to people that wanted it. They had tried it. They got back to us and said, it works in our system. Mm -hmm. And so we had a footnote in the paper saying, here are the people that have already gotten positive results. Mm -hmm. And of course, I need, because it was their unpublished work, uh, they need, uh, I needed to have their permission. And... Everybody was, was very nice. They said, you gave it to us before you published. Of course, you can cite our, our work. Uh, except for my wife, <laughs> who uh, is the person who made the first protein fusion with mm -hmm. GF, which is a very important experiment. Mm -hmm. And uh, she uh, and her paper came out so a couple of months later. But uh, she wrote, in the permission letter, the the one that I showed, I showed the letter that was at my Nobel speech, uh, where she said that we can cite her work, but only if I uh, make coffee every Saturday for two months and uh, prepare a special French dinner and take out the garbage nightly <laughs> for a month. Um, but that letter was for me. The letters she wrote that went to the science editors had none of that. In. <laughs> Nonetheless, she still claims I have not paid up. I believe I've paid many times over. Uh, we won't go into that. Um, but uh, so that's sort of how we got started with GFP. No, that's amazing. I, I love hearing that story. Here, we will have to pause our questioning for this first episode. 
Don't forget to tune in next week for the second part of the interview in episode 71 to learn more about how winning a Nobel Prize influences your life and how Professor Marjan Chalfi missed the announcement of his own Nobel Prize. For our listeners, uh, if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to us via this, our website, thestrugglingscientist.com. You can also check out our website to sign up for the awesome Journal of Struggling Scientists, aka our newsletter. Um, and if you have enjoyed uh, this episode, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening platform as it helps us grow and reach out to more struggling scientists out there. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. Jaron, which ones are those again? X, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope to see you again next time. Bye. 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 Bye.